If you have your Bibles on you, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We are going to look at the first six verses. And I have good news for you this morning, church. And uh, here it is. So if uh, the sermon I preach today, if it doesn't go very well, if the whole thing uh, falls flat, uh, the heavens will still declare the glory of God. And if, uh, if you're worship, if you came in today and you're just not feeling it, and your soul feels kind of stagnant, and you don't feel like you got to worship well to, uh, to draw from at the moment, uh, the rocks will still cry out. So my point is, uh, God is still going to get his glory, whether we're the ones giving it to him or not. He invites us into that and to be able to worship, to be able to speak his truths are a gift. So good morning to you. Good morning to those of you who are watching uh, with us online. Luke chapter 14, verse 1 through 6. Are you all ready to go? Let's give it a try. Luke 14, 1 through 6 says this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen to a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Pray with me if you would. Father, we come to you now in uh, the name of Jesus. And we do pray, God, that you would uh, meet us here. Uh, give us eyes to see what you want us to see this morning, ears to hear what you want to say to your beautiful bride. It is in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Church, uh, some people use the Bible for application and some people use it for ammunition. Some people use the Bible for application and some people use it for ammunition. It is amazing how a book that seems to point so seamlessly to Jesus and to freedom and to the potential rescue of the entire human race has also been used historically to affirm slavery, to oppress women, and to make a lot of really deplorable human beings very, very rich. How can people read the same book and come to so many different conclusions. There is an interesting debate among theological scholars, and it has to do with the phrase, the Word of God, the Word of God. A lot of people, when they talk about the Bible, they will refer to the Bible as the Word of God, but the Bible never refers to itself in that way. The Bible refers to Jesus as the Word of God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Then John chapter 1, verse 15, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And at first, that might seem kind of like a silly thing to argue about. It might seem like semantics, but uh, the more you think about it, the more you'll realize that how we define the Word will significantly shape how we approach the Scriptures. If the Bible is the definitive Word of God, then what it says goes. And if Jesus is the definitive word of God, then what he says goes, so which is it? 
Now, historically, I think the church has gotten itself into a lot of trouble anytime it has tried to interpret the text apart from Jesus. The only way to use the Bible to promote slavery or racism or misogyny is to remove Jesus from the equation. Jesus wants no part of our preferred forms of prejudice. The author N.C. Wright says this, and I really think this is a brilliant quote. He says, anytime we try to draw a conclusion saying, this is what God says here, without going through the gospel story, is to make the basic theological mistake of trying to deduce something about God while going behind Jesus' back. It makes no sense. Focusing on the rules without having a relationship with the ruler is like owning a house cat without a litter box. For a while, it might seem like it's making your life better, but eventually it's going to make your whole house stink. Now, personally, I have no problem referring to both the Bible and Jesus as God's Word because to me, they both reveal the wisdom of God. The Bible points to Jesus. Jesus illuminates the Bible. I see them both as deeply necessary and as threaded together. But I would argue we have no business reading the text apart from Jesus. The cross should become the lens through which we view every word, every story, and every rule in the text. Because it's only after living in the light of God's mercy that we will be able to interpret the text accurately. Those who study the Bible with Jesus are looking for application. Those who study the Bible without him are looking for ammunition. And I'm here to tell you, church, the world will be saved by God's breath, not God's bullets. Now, let me be clear. I am not saying that Jesus would ever go against the Scriptures. He, in fact, does not. The Bible says that he never broke any of God's commandments. But what he will do, and he often does, is challenge how we interpret them. He will take us to task for our interpretations, interpreting them wrongly. I mean, you can consider the whole Sermon on the Mount as a case study where Jesus is constantly saying, you've heard it said, but I say this. You've interpreted it historically to say this, but the Word of God, it says this. The Pharisees were all about the text. They were all about the rules. They were all about the laws. They were all about their standards. In many ways, um, the Pharisees, the Torah was the Pharisaical God. The rules were their ammunition, and everywhere they went, they went in locked and loaded. Like they already had a, a bullet in the chamber ready to fire. And at least for a, a while, Jesus became their primary target. They were constantly trying to trap the word Jesus with the words of the Bible. Even the story that we just read was a trap. According to the Old Testament and according to rabbinical literature, it was uh, against Jewish law to work on the Sabbath. Most of us know this. And that included healing people uh, unless the situation was life or death. 
And so a leader of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Pharisees, invited Jesus to his home on the Sabbath day to have dinner, and it just so happened that there was a man who was at their house who was suffering from the disease dropsy. Now, dropsy would be known in modern day, it'd be known to us as edema. It's like the uh, retaining of fluid. So this man's face was probably extremely swollen. His extremities were probably really swollen. It would have been a very painful uh, thing for this person to experience. Now, it's not a coincidence that Luke, who is the author of the Gospel of Luke, he was a physician. So it's no surprise that he, in this text, would include not just what Jesus was doing in the scene, but he actually gives a diagnosis to the man's illness, you know, because a doctor can't stop doctoring no matter what uh, role they're playing at that moment in society. But they brought the sick man before Jesus, and it was a trap. They wanted to see what Jesus would do with the man. If Jesus healed him there, then it would seem like Jesus was sort of really very bluntly and publicly denouncing his faith, going against Jewish law, breaking Jewish rules. And if he didn't heal him, then Jesus comes across as a cold-hearted and apathetic leader. And so the trap was set. So Jesus, looking at the man whose body was swollen, asked the other guests at the dinner party, he said, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath or not? And the other parties in the room gave no response. They said nothing. So then Jesus went ahead and he healed the man and he sent him on his way. The Bible says he sent him, healed him, and then he sent him home. Now, church, one of the ways that we know that this was a trap that the Pharisees had set is that uh, this man, after he gets healed, he doesn't stay for dinner. And you know why he doesn't stay for dinner? He wasn't an invited guest at the dinner party. His only role was to be there. He, he was to be the cheese on the Pharisaical mousetrap. And once he used up his usefulness, he's immediately kicked out of the door. He, he's immediately sent home. And then Jesus said this to them. He said, which of you, if you had a son or an ox, fall into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't immediately pull them out? Now, some translations, instead of son, say donkey, and I actually prefer that translation. Which of you, if you had a donkey or an ox, fall into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't immediately pull them out? Now, I want you to make note of the analogy that Jesus uses here, because I think it's a really brilliant one. I think it's just another example of uh, the brilliance of Jesus. Church, what would happen to an animal if it were to fall into a water well and it wasn't pretty quickly rescued? What would happen? It would drown. And what was happening to the man who was suffering from dropsy or edema? He was drowning. He was just drowning from the inside out. And Jesus is saying to these guys, why would you care more about your drowning livestock than you would care about this drowning man? Like, why, why would you put the, the why, why would you value the lives of your livestock more than you value the life of this brother who is standing in our midst. Jesus appealed here to the Pharisees' humanity. He was urging them to use common sense, essentially saying, when your rules seem to conflict with mercy, choose mercy. When your rules seem to conflict with grace, choose grace. 
When your rules seem to conflict with compassion, choose compassion. And I think we can take it a step further because we live on the other side of the cross. When your rules seem to conflict with Jesus, choose Jesus. Because the problem is never with Jesus. It is almost always with our exegesis, which is just a big word that means our interpretation. The problem's never him. It's always us. We're reading it. If it's causing us to act in an uncouth way, in an unholy manner, then we are misinterpreting the text that we're reading. Jesus said to the Pharisees, who of you, if you had a donkey or an ox falling into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't immediately pull them out and still nobody in the room responded. Nobody said anything. Why? Because they weren't looking for application. They were looking for ammunition. And Jesus had disarmed them. He had taken the bullets out of their proverbial guns. Now, according to Jewish thought at that time, and this has uh, been proven over the years to be completely false, but according to Jewish thought at the time, the human body was made up of 50% blood and 50% water. They thought that the body was 50% blood and 50% water. And the idea was that as long as you lived righteously, as long as you, at least in the minds of the Pharisees, as long as you were obedient to all of God's rules, then your body would maintain this healthy sense of balance and all would be well. But if you were to sin, the water might overwhelm the blood, and if that happened externally, it would lead to the disease dropsy. Or if the blood were to overwhelm the body, then that would lead to the disease leprosy, and that disease would externally be an example of the sin that you struggle with. Both ailments were seen as evidence of sin, signs that you had failed to live up to God's standards. This is why people in, uh, in Jewish culture were notorious for condemning or shunning people when they got sick. You know, if you showed up at the house and you had uh, leprosy, or you showed up and you had uh, dropsy, your outward appearance was a sign of your religious disobedience. And so they thought, we need to get as far away from that person as we possibly can, because if we don't, their shame might jump on us. Like, their shame might be contagious. But the flip side of that was, if you were sick, and if you would just get your life back in order, if you would just go back to following the rules and doing the things that you were supposed to do, then balance would be restored, and you would be healthy again. Now, surely, church, you could see how harmful this would be in a society or to a society, right? Because uh, not only would it be terrible to be having to deal with a sickness or something like that, a serious disease and the pain of that disease, but your whole family turns their back on you because they think uh, that the source of the disease is sin in your heart. If you read the book of Job, you can see them constantly trying to attribute what Job's got going on to sin that was in his life. But then came Jesus. And I'm going to say that again, okay? Then came Jesus, who in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38 said this. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is Jesus saying, believe in me and I will purify the water. Then 
Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 14. This is from the message translation. The text says this, But when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of this new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy place. Once and for all, listen, church, this is powerful. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives inside and out. This text is saying if we believe in Jesus, he will take care of purifying the blood. What people need, church, is not a blood-water balance, but we need a blood-water transfusion. If holiness is our desire, we don't need to follow more rules. We need to be washed in Christ's water and cleansed by his blood. The book of Acts chapter 4 verse 12 reminds us that salvation is found in no one else, no place else and by no way else. There is no other name under heaven by which a man can be saved than the name of Jesus. When I was growing up, I had a kid who lived next door to me, and probably from the age of about zero to 10, we were pretty much best friends. His name was, was Chad Perry. And the Perrys owned like a 30 or 40 acre farm, and my family owned a 30 or 40 acre farm, and uh, we had a barbed wire fence that ran uh, the length of our two farms. Like Robert Frost says, good fences make good neighbors. And uh, Chad and I would often get together to, to play. And if I wanted to go to Chad's house, I would have to go and ask my parents for permission. He would have to ask his parents uh, for permission. If he wanted to come to my house, I'd have to ask my parents permission. He would have to ask his parents permission. But if we just wanted to see each other, we could go hang out at the fence anytime we wanted. And we would stand there and talk like Wilson and Tim the Toolman Taylor for hours. Ha, ha, ha. I don't know. I don't know if that's a good. Ha, ha, ha. We would stand there and talk. And sometimes we would show up at, at this fence and we would like, we'd pass baseball back and forth across the barbed wire fence. We'd pass football. Well, like, there were a thousand different things that we could do because to do that, we didn't have to ask for permission. Then one day, we were like Langston Riggs' age, like six or seven years old, and we uh, finally realized that if one of us would walk up and grab the barbed wire fence and spread it apart, the other one could climb through, and we'd play together for, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, and then we'd go back and pull the fence open and let go back to the house, and we never had to ask our parents. I mean, we found this beautiful way to beat the system, right, to skirt the rules. Church, one of the reasons that the Pharisees had such a hard time with Jesus is because they believed that he was opening up a back door into heaven. I mean, I love this image. It's like the Pharisees thought that they held the keys to the kingdom with their rules and that they were the ones who got to determine whether or not people got in and out. And so you can imagine it with me. It's like the Pharisees are standing at heaven's gate and they've got this list of rules in their hand. And as somebody comes up to them, they're going, oh, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you break that one? And as soon as you broke one of them, they're sending you on their way. But the whole time, the Pharisees are sitting there looking at their list. Jesus is standing at the back and he's got the fence, the barbed wire fence, 
pride open, and he's inviting everybody to come in that way. Look, come on. All the people that are being rejected by the Pharisees, like they're turning their back, and Jesus is like, yeah, right here. All the people who are up to no good, you know, the, the nobodies, the ordinary, the down and out people, the pe people like you and me, like they're all getting invited in to the back way. And this is ticking the Pharisees off. They finally seen him do it, and they're like, hey, how dare you do that? And Jesus is like, it's my house. It's my house. I can let them in if I want to. It's my house. One of the most scandalous things about Jesus is that he believes, believed and believes, that everyone is spiritual and that anybody can be saved. Everyone is spiritual and anybody can be saved. Mike Iaconelli says it this way in his book, Messy Spirituality. He says, spirituality is not a formula. It's not a test. It's a relationship. Spirituality is not about competency, it's about intimacy. Spirituality is not about perfection, it's about connection. Spirituality is not about being fixed, it's about God being present in the mess of our unfixedness. And I'll add, church, spirituality isn't about what you've done, it's about what Jesus did. And somebody needs to hear that today. Because there's somebody in the room, there's somebody watching online, and like you've spent your whole life trying to figure things out on your own. You've spent your whole life, unintentionally what you've done is you've spent your whole life trying to do the right things, make the right decisions, hoping that eventually you'll balance out that blood and water thing, that you'll finally get it right, and once you do that, maybe then you'll have peace. Maybe then you can finally rest. But I've got news for you, church. Our works have never worked. Our works never work. All you really need to do is come to the end of yourself and believe. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You don't need a blood-water balance. You need a blood-water transfusion. You need to be washed by Christ's water and cleansed by his blood and then and only then will all things be set to right. Last Sunday, me and Deke uh, skipped church, and we went to hike Mount Cameron. Uh, now, before you judge me for, uh, for skipping out on a, a Sunday, I need you to know that I've been pastoring here now for almost 10 years, and in the 10 years that I've been here, I've missed church like five times. So all I'm trying to say is check the roll before you come at me, bro, okay? That's what I'm saying. Check the books. I think my numbers will add up a little better than yours, right? But uh, I was, on Saturday evening, I was just, I was done. I was just spiritually, emotionally, I was just, I was checked out. I knew that I needed a day off. And I get like that sometimes, particularly when it feels like when the days start becoming weeks and it feels like I'm not, I hadn't had a day off in four or, or five weeks, then I just, something in my mind's like, you've got to take a break. You've got to take a break. And so I asked Dick, do you want to go to, uh, to the mountains? And he's like, sure. And so we got up last, uh, early last Sunday morning. And the plan was to travel to uh, Roan Mountain State Park. And Roan Mountain is a couple hours away, but it's a beautiful place. Views are incredible, but it's not really difficult hiking. And so we set off for Roan Mountain, and we're about halfway there. And something, I kind of get the itch in my head. I'm like, maybe we should do something a little harder. You know, I had hiked uh, Mount Cameron 
um, in 2015 uh, alone. And Camera is uh, considered one of the four or five most difficult hikes in the smoke. It's rated um, strenuous. And so uh, about halfway to Rome Mountain I asked Deke, I'm like, hey, do you think you'd want to do something a little bit more difficult? And, uh, and Deke's like, yeah, I'm in, let's go. And so uh, we exit, I, I look up, you know, look up on my phone how to get to the, to the Cosby Campground, which is where that hike starts. And we exit to go do that hike. Now, we brought our backpacks with us, um, but all we had in our packs is that we both packed a, a water. So I pull into this gas station to get us, because I'm like, we're going to need some more serious supplies for such a serious hike. And I kid you not, church, I walk out of that gas station with two Gatorades and two packs of Nutter Butters. That's all I got. We hiked last Saturday for seven hours, 14 miles, 35,000 steps, and all we ate were two Nutter Butters each. I am pretty sure that's a form of child abuse. We were hiking down the mountain. We got like maybe two miles left, and I am physically done. Like, I'm, I mean, I've... I'm as done as, when I hiked it five years ago, I was probably 25 pounds less and I hadn't had two knee surgeries. I mean, I'm like, like I am at the end of it, you know? And Deke is hiking up in front of me and he's not doing great, but compared to me, he's doing really good. And uh, at this point, not only am I exhausted, I've ran out of water, my Gatorade's gone, all I'm sitting on is like four Nutter Butters. Deke's offering, he's like, Dad, I got a little water left. It's like something off of a movie. He's like, you can have some of my water. Like, I'm not taking your, I'm not taking your water. But Dee turns around and, and looks at me and he goes, Dad, are you okay? Because apparently I didn't look okay. And I said to him, I go, uh, I go, uh, actually, son, I'm doing real bad. It's like I'm actually looking around. Every step I take, I'm looking around trying to find a comfortable, comfortable spot in the leaves so that I can go curl up and die. And, uh, and I said, but this is what I want you to do. If, if I do that, I want you to keep, keep on going, and I want you to, to get back, and I want you to tell all the people that I, I love that uh, I died happy, you know, because I'm in the mountains. I mean, it's my, it's my happy spot. And Deke looked at me, and he goes, no way, Dad. He goes, uh, if, if you lay down, I'm going to come and sit with you. If you lay down, I'm going to come and sit with you. Church, the Pharisees believed that to get to heaven, you had to be your best self. But the gospel tells us that to get to heaven, you have to come to the end of yourself. The Pharisees believed that to get to heaven, you had to follow all the rules. The gospel says to get to heaven, you have to be in relationship with the ruler. The Pharisees believed that to get to heaven, you had to climb the mountain all by yourself. The gospel says if you will stop right where you are, the Son will come and sit with you. All you have to do is stop running, and then Jesus can start the rescuing. Even now, church, he's standing at the back fence, and he's got his nail-scarred hands because they're great at opening up the barbed wire. He's got that fence peeled open, and he's looking at all of you motioning. Hey, come home. Come home. It's my house. You're welcome here. Come home. Pray with me, church. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And God, I'm so grateful for salvation. I'm so grateful for who you are. I'm so grateful that this whole thing doesn't hinge on a, a decision that I would make or a step that I would take because, God, I'd find a way to screw it up. But you're faithful. You're true. 
you're pure and you're holy and you knew the best way to achieve my salvation and the salvation of everyone else who's in this room and everybody else who's on the, the planet or, or watching online was to send your son to our rescue and I'm so glad that you did. God, today we stop running and we wait because when we come to the end of ourselves, you show up and then the rescuing commences and the saving commences. God, when we dig into your word, help us to do so, looking for application and not ammunition because we know this world is going to be saved by your breath, not by our bullets. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.